Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 39. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there right in front of your seat, there's a Bible below the chair. We ask that you turn with us to page 777. Once again, today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 39. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your, shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on, the, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. So your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. us uh, here as we continue. Uh, Please join me again as we uh, pray. Lord God, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Holy Scriptures are read and now as your word is proclaimed, 
we may hear with joy what you say to us today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We live in a day and age where this culture of tolerance is highly praised. Um, people speak in the language of, I am spiritual, I'm a spiritual person. And uh, people often speak that all religions eventually lead to the same destination. Yet we come to chapter 23 that our brother Hoyoung read, and we come to one of the harshest, if not the harshest, chapter in the Bible that does not allow us to think of other world religions that way or false religions and false teachers that way, and that there is a, such a thing as right worship, right faith, truth, and false faith, false religion. Throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, we have heard of false spiritual leaders, false prophets who would speak as if God had appointed them and given words when God didn't. And in the New Testament, we hear Jesus speaking again and again of false spiritual teachers. And later on, uh, in the other letters of the New Testament, we're instructed about antichrists or false teachers warning us again and again, despite their ability to perform great signs and wonders, look out because false teachers are around. Counterfeit religion. And as I was reading through, meditating on this chapter, I did a lot of repenting. It was really convicting. It was, uh, I think as a preacher, this, this chapter really confronted a lot of things. And one of the things that I was confronted with was asking myself and also wondering if we look back, not that we should always directly confront false teaching and speak, uh, speak directly like that, but when was the last time we confronted false religion, false teacher? I mean, we live in a day and age where, you know, just embrace, just be tolerant. Yet, when was the last time that I confronted with this kind of directness and pointed out false teaching? When was the last time you confronted someone? Again, not that we should confront directly all the time, but have we confronted false teaching? Jesus has spoken publicly to his disciples, to the masses, against the Pharisees and religious teachers. He has spoken directly with the religious leaders. He's never spoken behind their backs, but he was bold and direct about the harmful teachings that they were um, giving to the people of God. Yet the reality is these Pharisees and religious leaders rejected Jesus, and they were eventually plotting to kill him. And now, in chapter 23, Jesus points out, now I reject you guys. And he warns the people from the crowds that have gathered to the disciples about what kind of wrong um, teaching that they've been giving. Um, in chapter 22, Pastor Eugene was preaching through um, some of the discussions, the dialogues that Jesus had. Jesus was teaching through parables in the last section um, the Pharisees and religious leaders were setting Jesus up with questions, trying to trip him, yet Jesus was too smart. And eventually, Jesus ends the whole dialogue with a question that they couldn't handle about the question about Messiah um, being both man and God. And after that, being stumped, they, they had nothing else to say. And we come on this passage. It's Wednesday of the Passion Week. Eventually, in two days, he's going to be crucified, and he is in the temple. All this dialoguing happens in the temple in Jerusalem. You have masses of people who have traveled from afar to uh, celebrate the Passover. You have the disciples with them. You have the masses who are there to celebrate, and you have the religious leaders still there. The conversations, the dialogue 
finished, but he is in front of people. People are surrounding him, and it is in this context that Jesus goes through the teaching, the final public speech, final sermon that he gives in public. And out of all the things that he could be teaching, he points out the danger of false teachers. Jesus started one of the things that he brought out um, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 was the warning against Pharisees for being hypocritical, for being hypocrites. And now, not only does he start, he ends a public sermon again with this emphasis, the need that we need to watch out for false teachers. And I've been asking myself, it's like, wow, how serious have I thought? How serious do we think about the danger of false spiritual leaders and teachers? Do we seek that kind of discernment? Are we aware that they're false teachers? What do we look at to filter so that we are aware and we're heeding Jesus' teaching here. Jesus is warning them, essentially, about the danger of false teachers, to stay away from them. But in addition to pointing out the errors and the dangers of these false religious teachers, what he's really saying, because eventually he's going to be... Um, Dying in two days, he's going to rise up again in three days, and after um, he's going to ascend, and the only people who will be left will really be his disciples. He's setting up the disciples as a true spiritual leaders that they're supposed to listen to and follow, not these false spiritual leaders. These are the dangers, and look, these are the real spiritual leaders you should be following And you can't help, as Jesus publicly attacks these spiritual leaders for their falsehood and moral emptiness and spiritual lack of authority, you know, they scheme to arrest and kill him because he has threatened their credibility and their um, career, their livelihood. And the majority of the first um, part of chapter 23, we see the term hypocrites repeated again and again. Hypocrites, 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 combination a couple of times, blind guides. Um, emphasis on, again, that Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Um, and then at, at, as we wrapped up, as Hoyoung read the final few verses, we see this compassionate lament as Jesus looks over the Jerusalem city and um, laments over the spiritual deadness, the rejection that he has experienced, uh, both from the religious leaders and also the people that have been following him. In verses 1 through 4, um, it reads, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the, his disciples, so he's speaking to the crowds and the disciples in the temple, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. You see, the, the diagnosis that Jesus gives about the problem with the, these religious leaders is that they're hypocrites. Pastor Eugene went through what hypocrites are. I mean, the actors, at least in the original, who put on a mask to play a part Originally, it was a neutral term, but now in, in the usage of the Bible, it's clearly a negative um, you know, title that the hip, um, religious leaders receive because they're not being authentic. They're not living with integrity. Now, scribes and Pharisees, actually, Pharisees were the largest, maybe like 6,000 in membership. They were the spiritual leaders of Israel. Within the Pharisees, the top group of people were the scribes. They were the leading teachers within the Pharisees. So Jesus is attacking the top of the top spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, in Israel at the time. And he's pointing out, why is he pointing this out? Because clearly this hypocrisy 
was a clear mark of false spiritual leaders. But there's also another thing, just as I mentioned, his disciples were wrestling with the same sort of temptations and tensions. They wanted what these spiritual leaders had. And they would just as, and soon, fall to prey uh, to the temptations. Now, these spiritual leaders were inconsistent. They say one thing, and as Jesus pointed out, do what they say, not what they do. What they said was true, but they didn't do what they said. They were lax in the way they practiced, lived out, and obeyed what they taught. I think we often, I often thought that Pharisees were really precise, legalistic to the point of following everything, yet there was a pretension. When they taught, they emphasized all the minutia, all the details of following, breaking down the Ten Commandments to more than hundreds and hundreds of different laws. However, they were actually lax in obeying them. So Jesus actually is pointing out that they're careless. They're overly lax. They don't really follow God's law. They say and they teach, but they themselves do not. And this is what again and again, the term hypocrites, you hypocrites, comes up again and again because of that kind of lack of integrity that he wants to see, that he wants to see in his disciples, that he wants to see in you and me, that there's a consistency in what we say we believe, what we say we should do, and what we actually do. Not just when we gather together in public, like here, corporately in worship, but how we live out when we are at home, when we are at work, when we are at school. When we become a member at CGS, we take a vow, uh, we take a vow and we sign the vow of membership. And the first three includes the following. We vow that we acknowledge that we are sinners. We vow that we receive and depend the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And the third vow reads, we resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that we will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. So when we take a vow, and when we sign these membership documents, but we live as if we have not taken the vow, then we are living as hypocrites because that's showing that we didn't really have the intention to follow the vows that we have made. And this is the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out against the Pharisees because they would say, they would teach, but they wouldn't do it. For those of us who our members, when we read the vows, when we signed the vows, did we sign it? Really thinking of intending, do we look at those vows again to evaluate, checking our hearts and whether we are following through? That is the kind of spiritual problem that Jesus is pointing out in these religious leaders who teach the right things but don't follow through. Robert McCain, McCain said, it is the mark of the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home, especially when you don't think, when you're not in public, in the private places, thinking that this is you know, my business when we're not seen by people outside. How are we living? Are we living as hypocrites? when we are alone, when we are with our family at home, not just when we're interacting with those outside. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus continues speaking to the disciples and to the masses who've gathered. The Pharisees and scribes are around. They haven't departed. They are in the temple. But Jesus is directing to the disciples and the masses here. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So we see behind this problem of hypocrisy, deep down is our desire, their desire to uh, please men, their people pleasers. 
They want to be recognized. Instead of aiming to please God, they want to please mankind and be seen that way. Now, phylacteries are these boxes, black boxes that uh, Jews would place on their forehead with uh, thongs tied around when they pray, and they would have on their left arm as they pray. Now, originally, when um, Exodus and Deuteronomy talks of placing these verses of Scripture on their forehead and the arm, it's really meant to remind the people of God that when you pray, like keep things in your heart, in your thought, and putting it in your arm means, you know, do it in this way. But eventually, after probably about a millennium, I think we, we you know, they, they saw signs of actual phylacteries being used around 400 BC, um, and people began to take it literally, putting on their literal forehead instead of keeping it in their heart, and, you know, inside were verses uh, from different parts of the Bible, and, you know, on their arm, they, they forgot the heart of what God wanted the people of Israel to do, and instead of understanding the intent, the heart of what this command was, they began to focus on the actual phylactery itself, size of it, and, you know, make the box bigger, the band bigger, so that, you know, bigger the band, more people will notice, and they will see, oh, he or, will be a holier person by carrying or wearing a widened thong so people could see. And while we may not have seen people wearing uh, phylacteries, because unless you know a practicing Jew, um, it would be hard, You've, all of us probably have seen Orthodox Jews with tassels on the side, right? You, you would see them walking around uh, these strings. Um, this was commanded by God as an intent to set them apart from other nations. And just as, you know, the phylacteries became in itself the focus and a distraction to show, people began to ask their tailors or they themselves would make them longer, bigger, so that people would notice and give them props, like, wow, they must be uh, super spiritual because their, you know, tassels are longer, bigger, wider. And Jesus, again, you hypocrite. And these false religious leaders, they also sought places of honor in banquets and synagogues. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to have that special seat. Often they would come late and have that entrance and people would recognize them. I was reading uh, these verses, and then the next one also includes how they enjoy being greeted in marketplaces. People giving them special reference and of you know deference, greeted with deference and respect, and they enjoy that. As I think about and meditate on these short verses, um, I think this. These verses really challenged me personally. I was reflecting back to my years of ministry, um, thinking of times either officiating a wedding or um, when the town that I was part of, you know, called the pastor at like a Memorial Day parade and before the crowd asked to be seated and pray. Just thinking about like my heart. You know, in the name of being part of a community and being involved and contributing, how is my heart different? Or how are seeds of these kind of sinful things sown in my heart? When I run into people who do not know me, who do not know that I'm a pastor, um, sometimes I, I intentionally try to check my heart. So if they don't know that I'm a pastor and they, they just call me, um, just like first name, which is perfectly fine, I check how I feel when they call me in such a way. And sometimes, when I'm not doing well with God, when I find myself placing a greater emphasis, when, when this kind of false spiritual leadership, the spirit of, is brewing in me, I find my heart getting greater offense experiencing that when someone does not call me in a certain way. So, Father, I am away from God the less I'm rooted in the gospel and understand who I am and who God is, 
the more I want to be recognized by people. And how I receive it in my heart, for me, is a good indicator of whether I am embracing the gospel well and feasting on it, or I am stiff-arming it, and instead of receiving the accolades and seeking the accolades from God, whether I'm seeking that accolade from people. In, in preparing, I was just really reminded, wow, we teachers, we preachers, we, we elders of the church really covet your prayers. Wow, I need your prayers. We need your prayers to cover us because our hearts, just like we'll see later on in the disciples, you fast forward, they're coveting the very thing that Jesus was attacking and pointing out. Think about the conversation that the disciples had at the Last Supper. Who's the greatest? The same thing that Jesus has been teaching again and again, they still don't get, and they want that. And in my sinfulness, I want that. And I need to, we need to come back to the cross in verse 8 through 10, Jesus continues, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers, and, no, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Um, Jesus isn't saying that you should you know, never call your earthly father, father or like a teacher, teacher. Um, obviously, even in the New Testament, the term pastor, teacher, um, those terms are used. Um, but the heart of is, title is not the main point. It's the heart that Jesus is attacking. If you are seeking a spiritual authority and the position and the title, that's what's the problem, that you want to be called that. Using titles improperly. Um, Jesus is after our heart that we do not seek praise of men um, and ultimately we don't have priests anymore I'm not a priest we only have one priest and that's Jesus Christ we don't need an intermediary to go to the Father we only go through the Son I'm only a messenger we only preach what God has given and we deliver that message. And this coming Friday night through Saturday, all the officers, the deacons, uh, the elders, uh, we will be going away at an uh, officer's retreat. Um, my request for you guys is that you pray for us, that you cover us with prayer, that we would continue to learn humbly what the word has to say, that we would continue to examine our hearts together because we need that. We need to be continually equipped, taught, uh, but we, need, we covet your prayers. So please pray for the officers of our church um, that we would not be tempted to seek praise of men and women of this world, but ultimately that we would seek to hear only from our God, from our Lord, what drives us would be not great job from people that surrounds us, but good job from our master when he does return. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus continues, the greatest among you. So previous, he's been saying the, the negatives. These are the problems. These are the marks of the false spiritual leaders. Now, instead of Living this way, this is how you should live. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He wants us to cultivate humility. This is nothing new. Jesus has been teaching this again and again throughout the gospel. And if we are using our platform to advance ourselves in ministry, that is, then we're going to be brought low. But instead, if we serve, if we seek to serve our brothers and sisters, then um, we will be exalted. Um, the desire of the Pharisees was to receive honor and be called a master teacher. They want to be elevated. Desire of true Christian who is transformed from inside 
seeks to glorify God and do good and serve others. But this, this truly is a miracle that can only happen when the Holy Spirit is working in us, sanctifying us, when we get the good news of Jesus. This, this can't happen in a real way by human strength. We can pretend to serve, but if we're doing it on our own effort, we will run out, and it will easily, quickly be about me instead of truly for God. And now we move from, you know, Jesus has been talking mainly to the masses and the disciples, and he speaks directly to the Pharisees and the scribes, the woes, the seven woes. Um, the disciples and, Pharisees, um, and the crowd, they're still there, but he's directing these attacks, verbal attacks publicly to the religious leaders. Woes to you. And woe is actually, so in its original word, it's kind of like uh, an automatopoeia. It's a, it's a sound that you would groan. And it's not like, um, like, damn you, curse you. When we get mad, we shouldn't say that anyway. But it's not that kind of, that, uh, you know, saying something when you're angry. But this is a um, divine, divine fiat. It's like, it's, an, it's a divine judgment. It's like, woe to you. And it is, it's not what's going to happen. It is done. You are damned. And it's a pronouncement um, for the rejection that they have um, brought themselves. So the first woe, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So the first woe is, uh, first Woe that Jesus points out is for, for making salvation hard for people. For people who are seeking salvation, but they make it hard. Not only do they, you know, they, they represent God, they claim to, they bring people to the entrance of salvation, but they themselves don't accept it, so they don't enter, and they don't let, they don't let or lead others to enter into salvation. Think of, I think of ministers of congregations who speak in generalities, perhaps with good intentions, speak to encourage, make people feel good, but never explain that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ by grace alone. Acknowledging our sin, recognizing that Jesus pay the price to restore us back to the Father and that that's the only way to the Father. But because sin is a painful word, they won't use it because repentance is not a popular concept, they won't use it. How many pastors and preachers have you heard who would bring people close but close a door And I think of seminary professors that I've listened to that undermine belief in the authority of the word, sometimes attacking deity of Christ, questioning miracles in the Bible, the effectiveness of Jesus' death on the cross, questioning the bodily resurrection of Jesus, just to list a few. And if you and I believe the scripture, what are we called to do when people are teaching false doctrines? Jesus wasn't harsh and direct all the time, but Jesus here is harsh and direct with no equivocation. He's clear. Woe to you that we will confront it and denounce it. I think my personality, like, I, you know, I actually enjoy talking to, like, Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons, and I try to kind of 
not play with them, but try to converse with them. Um, I won't necessarily tell them that I'm a pastor right away, um, but I have not been this direct with Mormons that I've sat down and spoken with and show the gravity of seriousness that you're going to hell because what you believe is not from the scripture. This chapter really, really challenges me um, because it's not comfortable. But then I'm reminded God never said, follow me and you'll be comfortable. The second woe in verse 15 um, just aside, verse 14 is not, it's missing. It's from the other Gospels. And eventually when we go to, if and when we go to other Gospels, we'll see it. But verse 15 uh, was added, uh, 14 was added. So that's why in, in ESV, um, it skips from 13 to 15. Second woe says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. proselyte and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So he points out for the woe for corrupting converts. Um, Jews were not necessarily known for being evangelistic, making converts, but we also know during Paul's time and Jesus' time, they were a little more intentional and, you know, converts are made and remember Judaizers were coming to Galatia and you know Paul had to correct them and you know because they were opposing him um, so it was happening and it, it, there's a difference between someone growing up in faith versus someone who comes to faith later on you might have met some of us um, who grew up in church are not necessarily known for like a passion and zeal. But for those of us who came to follow Jesus later on in life, there's greater passion. There's a greater just counting of the cost because it, it, was, it was a clear decision that we often made. And what it's pointing out here is by converting those, you know, non-Jews to Jew, the ism, they're making them twice as, you know, people of hell because they were zealous, that much more zealous in spreading the false teaching that they were learning from these Jewish leaders. They were growing and learning in hypocrisy and their legalism and unbelief and ultimately rejecting Jesus of the scripture. And the third woe that Jesus points out, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Again, there's an emphasis. Blind guy, blind fool, blind men. They can't see. They're trying to lead people, but they don't know where they're going. For which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on that altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So Jesus is pointing out the fact that these false uh, spiritual leaders subvert the truth. Um, they're making, you know, distinction with these kind of minute things to avoid the consequence of the law. And, you know, lawyers at that time were debating on what's legally binding and non-binding oaths. So they would say, basically, that if you take an oath and use the name of the Lord, then you are bound by it. But in Judaism, you can't say the Lord's name. So often, you would use, you would swear by in um, heaven or temple or throne instead of God's name. But then the debate came about, it's like, well, what makes one valid and not? So temple, so if you swear by temple, they would say now is invalid, but gold of the temple, oh, that, that's valid. But does that make any sense? 
No, it doesn't. Swearing by an altar was insignificant, but swearing by the gift on the altar, they would say it is valid. But ultimately, we know that Jesus taught against this kind of nonsense and said, let your yes be yes, no be no. And we've been going through the book of James. James also repeats, reiterates what Jesus was teaching. Don't swear by anything. Just let your yes be yes, no be no. Don't try to get yourself out of a commitment you made. If you say yes, do it. If you don't want to do it, say no. Just take the Bible statements at face value. Start, stop trying to, you know, wiggle yourself out of obeying. Jesus is after the heart. The fourth woe, verse 23, 24, Jesus continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrite again. For you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now Jesus is pointing out that these false religious leaders are neglecting what is actually important instead of focusing on what is really inconsequential. The law did require tithing of grain, of wine, oil, and firstborn of animals. Um, and Jesus is actually not rebuking them for tithing on these small you know, herbs like mint, dill, and cumin. Um, by the way, these things you'd be growing at home, and they would technically count as an increase. So you know, tithing those little amount of you know, these herbs it's a good thing, but they're focusing on these tiny little things that are inconsequential and missing out on the more important thing. Like what? Like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's not like don't tithe on these little things. No, fine. But make sure you do the bigger thing, the actually important thing. And that is probably considered the smallest unclean thing for a Jew. Jesus finishes this part by saying, you strain out a gnat so that you don't swallow a gnat when you're pressing wine or stuff so that doesn't get mixed because you don't want to, you know, drink something that's unclean. But Jesus, so you strain out a gnat, the smallest unclean animal that's there, a bug, but you swallow a camel, the biggest unclean animal that you can imagine. You focus on the small thing, but you're missing out on the biggest thing that actually matters. Focus on what matters, people. How might we be doing this? How, how might we be focusing the, on the non-essentials of what we believe instead of focusing on the essentials? As Jesus would say, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And as Jesus commanded before he ascended, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded, it is sometimes easier to focus on the non-essentials and thinking we are doing the right thing when God wants us. Sure, you can do that, but make sure you focus on the essential because that's the main thing. The fifth woe Jesus points out against the false spiritual leaders is for their self-indulgence. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, again. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You know, Pharisees would debate about um, how to keep kosher kitchen. Um, one scholar uh, reported something like this. An earthen vessel which is holy becomes unclean only on the inside and not on the outside. It can only be cleansed by being broken. So that's how you make something that is unclean clean, by breaking it and no longer using. And the following earthen vessels cannot become unclean at all. A flat plate without a rim, an open coal shovel, and a gridiron with holes in it for parching grains of uh, wheat. On the other hand, these are the things that uh, become unclean, 
a plate with a rim, an earthen spice box, a writing case. So of vessels made with leather, bone, wood, glass, flat ones do not become unclean. The flat ones don't. The deep ones do. And if they are broken, they become clean. Um, and the food or drink inside a vessel um, might have been obtained by cheating, who knows, by extortion, who knows, by theft, um, to satisfy that gluttonous desire, but that didn't matter as long as the vessel itself was ceremoniously clean. But how ridiculous is that? Keeping the appearance of cleanliness without getting to what's actually inside. We might think we go to church, we give to the church, we try not to curse, we follow through in our civic duty, but how about in the way we work? Are we honest in our business? Are we covetous with money? Are we cruel and harsh when we relate with people, perhaps especially in our family or close relationships? Are we selfish? Are we proud? Are we arrogant? Are we seeking praise of people? Do we say, what I do in private doesn't matter, that's nothing to you? And Jesus said, you are a hypocrite. Make sure what's inside is clean. Don't just focus on the external. The sixth woe, Jesus continues. He's talking, he's pointing out the errors to all the people clearly pointing out to the Pharisees that they are the cause here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like, the, like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus points out the wickedness within. I mean, it's all showing, right? There's, there's an overlap here, but... On this one, there's wickedness within that they are trying to hide with this whitewashed tomb. Whitewashed tomb basically is a euphemism for decaying human matter. Um, if you are uh, living in Jerusalem or in that area, as people get ready to come to the city, to the temple to worship, to celebrate the Passover, um, the Jews of the town, um, the Jewish leaders and Jews, Jews around the town, like a prior months would go around and renew the whitewash of the tomb so that it will be clearly marked. So as, you know, these uh, pious Jews come to honor God, they wouldn't accidentally touch these tombs and defile themselves. So they'll whitewash it to make it very distinct. It's like, don't, you know, it'll look clean and they'll be marked clearly so that they don't touch and defile themselves. And what is Jesus saying? You're being hypocritical. You're focusing on the external when inside you're rotting, dead, and decaying. Focusing on the outward ceremonial things when inside we're decaying and dying. Brothers and sisters, when we, next week, we take communion, every first week, we take communion, we get to remember what Jesus did. I wonder how many of us, including myself, are more concerned about what people may think of us if we don't come up to take the element. If I'm struggling with sin, if I have sinned against another brother or sister, then I need to be right with God first. I need to be right with my brother or sister first. But how many of us because we are afraid that if I don't go up, people would think, well, I'm, I'm in sin. So we're more afraid of what people may think of us than how we are actually with God. I want to exhort you. The most important thing is how we are with God. Let's not be so focused on what others may think or not think. Let's seek to please God. 
and be right with him above all things. The final woe comes to us. Jesus continues by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus points out the murder of God's prophet by these false spiritual leaders. And this is the climax of all the things that Jesus is pointing out. Like You are just like your forefathers who murdered all the prophets that God sent. And Jesus points out Abel, the first who was sacrificed at the altar, and Zechariah, who comes up Second Chronicles, but at the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament, the last person to be sacrificed in the temple. So you have killed them all, and you will do the same. Jesus points out that he's going to send more, and eventually that's what happens. Paul himself was a persecutor himself, who eventually was martyred by the very uh, ones that he... Um, turned away from, and eventually the disciples who took on the baton of being the lead teacher of the truth, eventually, 10 of them were killed. Early gospel preachers were flogged, pursued, and killed. As I think about these seven woes and the marks of false spiritual leaders, one other thing that I can't help but is really implore you to again pray for me, pray for uh, Pastor Eugene, pray for the elders, um, pray for us so that these seeds of sin wouldn't grow. Pray for us that God will protect our hearts. And just as the disciples eventually in, in, in two days will go on to argue about who's the greatest, that we wouldn't live to seek the applause of of people, but instead, the applause of God and God alone. Jesus ends with these three verses um, from 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was harsh. He didn't hold back. He's kind of just like yelling, clearly informing the masses to stay away from these false spiritual leaders. But at the heart of all that kind of denunciation he gives his heart is breaking. You see his lament as he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the representation of the, uh, um, the country of Israel. And you see God's heart, that he doesn't delight in destroying sinners, but in fact, he delights in seeing them come back and restored. And there are three things that I'm going to end with. Um, Jesus here, in verse 37, he warns, I guess, warns us against unbelief. Um, Israel is to be gathered by God, but it is Israel who rejects his love. It's Israel who rejects the good news that he has come to give. In the midst of all these people who are gathering at the temple to remember what God has done, as God led the Israelites, as he led them out of exile, um, from bondage of Egypt, he's pointing out, you are rejecting me. I want to gather you as a hen would gather his chicks, but you are the one who rejected. 
um, scripture, when you hear a name repeat twice, there is this deep kind of pathos, intense emotion. Like David calls Absalom, Absalom, because he loves him. Jesus has compassion on Martha when uh, Martha lost her brother. Say, Martha, Martha. There, there's this compassion that Jesus has, and Jesus used that same two-word repetition, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. <sighs> I love you. And I, I want to gather you as a hen would gather. And this image comes through again and again in Exodus and Psalms where um, God wants to cover with his people as, as, a, as a bird with his wings. And it's a sign of protection. Like, I don't know how many of you guys ever gone to a farm, but I, I kind of envision like a, a bird, a, a chick covering its, a, a hen covering its chicks before, you know, maybe sees a hawk flying on top. It's like, danger, come, l- let me protect you. Or maybe uh, an image before a storm. When a, the, the mother hen wants to cover and protect its chick. It's like, come, come. But what Jesus is pointing out, is like, I want to cover you. I want to protect you. I want to save you from the impending destruction. But you know what? You guys are not coming. You guys have rejected me. You are the one who did not believe. Christ is more willing to save than we want to be saved. That is the good news. But it is our unbelief if we don't believe. In verse 38, Jesus warns against the judgment to come. Short verse, it says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Um, It is them who choose desolation, them who choose to not come under, and destruction is on their way. Fast forward some 40 years, in about 70 AD, the biggest destruction happened to the people of Israel. More massive, more devastating than 722 Assyrian captivity, more devastating, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. They're both B.C., 722, 587. Here, 70 A.D., Romans come. They totally decimate the city, the temple. Everything that they held dear is in shambles. Judgment does come. But you know what's even more devastating than destruction of the temple and the city? It's departure of God's presence. You're the one who rejected me. And that's what they receive. You see, Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension is good news for those who receive. Salvation for those who trust. But the Bible says, if you don't believe... Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension is a judgment and damnation. Jesus ends with the final verse, 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Speaking of his day of salvation, when he will return um, to judge His future coming in a cloud of glory where every knee will bow, whether because you recognize him for who he is, because you trust him, you believe him, or even if you don't, you'll be brought to your knees because he will make you, because that's who he is. Brothers and sisters, how will you respond How have we responded to God's gracious display of love? Or have you rejected? Maybe you're thinking, maybe not today. Maybe later on. We don't know what tomorrow holds. None of us do. I mean, there are, like, without getting morbid, there are people dying now of this disease. If you follow the news, none of us knows what tomorrow holds. I don't know. But we do know what the Word says, 
who our Savior is and what eternal life looks like now to those who do believe in Jesus. Is our house desolate or does Christ dwell in it? Have we embraced Jesus, following him, though we are stumbling and falling like the disciples, or have we rejected him? And are we apathetic about him? And is something else captivating and capturing your heart more than Jesus? There is an urgency that Jesus is ending here. His last sermon. This is the last sermon he gives to the public. Later on, he speaks and teaches his disciples, but this is the last public sermon. Let's watch out. Let's examine our hearts. Church, pray for us officers, because we need it. I covet your prayers. Would you join me as we pray?